Welcome to Wednesday Word, a Bible study led by Pastor John Jenkins of Northport Baptist Church. All right, we'll turn over to Acts 13. And we've been here a few weeks. We'll finish Acts 13 next week. So, uh, but I think Acts 13 is very, very important, especially as why we're looking at the book of Acts, understanding what it's going to be like in the last days is what I believe God's going to do again what He once did. And just before the return of Christ Jesus, I believe our world, I believe the church, the true church of Jesus Christ is going to look just like the book of Acts. I believe He's just going to do again what He did. And so in Acts 13, the beginning of Acts 13, we see a picture of a church that I would love to be like. It's the church of Antioch. And I believe the church of Antioch there did more for the world than any other church. It's just amazing to me what God did out of the prayers of this church. And so we talked about that a little bit, how this church, they worshiped, they fasted, they prayed. But you also see the leadership of this church and you see how they had different giftings and they had different people doing different things. You just see so much about the church of Antioch. And so we talked about that. But then after the first part of Acts 13, we see two men that were sent out of the church of Antioch, Saul and Barnabas. Of course, we know him as Paul. And in Acts 13, that's when he starts going by the name Paul because he's going to the Roman world, to the Greek world. So he starts using his Greek name. And so as he goes out and as they're sent out, It says they're sent out by the Holy Spirit of God, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And you see that in Acts chapter 13. And so two things as they first go out that I truly believe are paramount, not only in the last days, but throughout Christianity and church history. You see two things that are inevitable. Number one, you see opposition. The very first thing that happens to Saul and Barnabas when they go out as missionaries is they face opposition. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit in a minute. But that's going to become a lot more intense as we get closer to the return of Christ Jesus. A lot more intense. Now in the book of Acts, you saw some intensity with the opposition. Okay, So we've already seen a lot of that as we studied the first part of the book of Acts, right? Especially with the apostles as they went out. I mean, they were scourged. We saw Stephen stoned to death. I mean, you saw some opposition. And so as we read the rest of the book of Acts, what are you going to see? Some pretty good opposition. And so they're trying to oppose Paul. And so we see that in Acts 13. But then towards the end of the Acts 13, we see the importance of the Word of God. And so we'll talk more about that next week because that's what we got is the church. And I know in a lot of ways we don't understand that, I think, especially in our modern-day culture in the West. But the Word of God is what people need. And in Acts 13, they're begging for it, by the way. Wouldn't that be great if people here were begging for the Word of God? But whenever the Word of God, the true Word of God is preached, what is going to happen? It's going to be opposed. And there's a reason it's going to be opposed. And I'm telling you, Acts 13 lays it out clearer than anywhere in the Bible, the opposition to the Word of God. Okay, so... We'll just read it real quick, and we'll talk about it a minute. But let's just read the story so you get the whole story. So look at verse 4, Acts 13, 4. This is what the Bible says. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I could talk about that verse all day, especially in church context with missions and people called into ministry, but we can send people out as a church, but that ain't any good. We want people called and sent out by the Holy Spirit of God, okay? So that's another sermon for another day. But they were sent out for the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia and then sailed to the island of Cyprus. There in the town of Salamis, they went to the Jewish synagogues and preached the word of God. So what did they preach? Okay, they preached the word of God. They didn't preach their thoughts. They didn't preach their ideas. They didn't try to sugarcoat it to make people feel better or to tickle their ears so that they would accept it. Okay, Paul talks about that later on in life. But that's what a lot of people do, and that's especially what people do in our day. Especially what people do in our day. They preach the Word of God. Now, interesting here, what did they preach? Okay, so now think about what they had as the Word of God and what we have today as the Word of God. Now, this is before the New Testament. Nothing at this point is written in the New Testament. They didn't have Matthew. They didn't have Mark. They didn't have Luke. They didn't have John. Okay, they didn't have any of that. They didn't have any of the writings of Paul because Paul didn't have a clue at this point. Okay, he's just going out. Okay, so what did they preach? Okay, now here's the question. Where did they preach first? Okay, they preached in the synagogues. Okay, so that's the clue right there. So what they preached is they preached the Word of God to them, what they had. And what did they have? They had the Old Testament. They had the prophets. They had the Torah. So they had the Old Testament. So why would they go to the synagogue to preach? Well, what they would do is they would use those verses and they would use the Old Testament to point people to Christ, to Jesus, and to talk, give them an opportunity to talk about the resurrection. Okay, we saw that all through the book of Acts. That was their goal. That was their theme. So that's how they preached the Word of God. Now, later on in Acts 13, you're going to see exactly how they did that. I mean, exactly. It gives us the outline. It gives us what they did. So you're going to see that more next week, but that's what they preached. That was the Word of God. So it goes on there in verse 5. It says, John Mark went with them as their assistant. And, of course, that is the person that will eventually write the book of Mark. And so he was a relative of Barnabas, and so you're going to see in a couple chapters he causes some friction between the two. But verse 6, Afterward, they traveled from town to town across the entire island of Cyprus there until finally they reached Paphos, where they met a Jewish sorcerer, a false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Now, again, don't read too much into that. All that means is he's the son of a man named Jesus. And so Jesus was more of a common name. It was like Joshua. That would have been what the name in Jesus' day would have been Jesus, Joshua. So like you see Josh is here, Joshua. That's just the son of Joshua. That's what it means. So verse 7, he attached himself to the governor, Sergius Paulus, who was an intelligent man. Now, why do you think he did that? Well, you're going to see it's strategic. The governor invited Barnabas and Saul to visit him for he wanted to hear what? Okay, just as you read Acts 13, see how many times that is said. It's over and over and over and over again, the Word of God. He wanted to hear this governor, this Roman governor, who wasn't Jewish, he wasn't a Christian, a believer, wasn't a child of God. He wanted to hear the Word of God. Why? Because there's power in the Word of God. It amazed him. But then this is what it says, verse 8. But Elymas, who is Bar-Jesus, that's the sorcerer, Elymas interfered 
and he urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. Why? He was trying to keep the governor from believing. And believing what? Jesus. Bar-Jesus was trying to keep the governor from becoming a follower of Christ. So again, the question, why is there opposition to the Word of God? Why is there opposition to the church? Why is there opposition to missions? Why is there opposition? That's the answer right there. That is the clearest answer. Because Satan, the kingdom of darkness, this world, however you want to say it, they are trying to keep people from believing. That's it. Because what happens when someone believes? It's over, right? Everything changes at that point. Because they become a child of God through Christ Jesus. And how does it happen? Through what? The Word of God. Now, of course, you have to have the Holy Spirit. But you have to have the Word of God. Because without the Word of God, what do we know about Jesus? You don't know nothing, do you? You might could read about him in a history book, but would you know anything why he went to the cross or why God raised him from the dead or any of that without the Word of God? You would know nothing. The Word of God is paramount, and it has become more paramount in our day as we get closer to the return of Christ. But I'm telling you, we will face opposition. But just read the rest of the story, verse 9. Saul, also known as Paul, there he is, he starts going by Paul there, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looked the sorcerer in the eye, and I love this, then he said, you son of the devil, filled with every sort of deceit and fraud, and the enemy of all that is good, will you never stop perverting, what? The true ways of the Lord. Okay, so what is he saying there? You're perverting the Word of God. You're perverting what God says. Okay? We got a lot of sons of the devil around. And a lot of them are in the church, by the way. Okay? A lot of them. And what's the goal? What's the end game? To stop people from believing. It's the end game. It's so easy. It's right here. But that's what was happening. So this is what he says. Paul says, watch now. For the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you, and you will be struck blind. You will not see the sunlight for some time. Instantly a mist and darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand and to lead him. When the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer, for he was astonished at what? what Paul did to this man named Bar-Jesus and that he was blind and that he was groping around like a dog? Is that what he was astonished at? What was he astonished at? The teaching of the Lord. He was astonished at the Word of God. That's what changed him. That's what changed him. Okay? So I'm telling you right here, this is what you see in our day, especially in the West, but you see it anywhere all over the world. You have people who will stand on the Word of God, who will preach the Word of God and understand what God does through His Word, and you have people who oppose it, and some of them don't even know they're opposing it. Some of them think they're helping. 
when in turn they're leading people astray. Okay. Let's talk about opposition for just a moment. Okay, so good question about this story is how did Paul know this sorcerer, Elemas or Bar-Jesus, whatever you want to call him, how did he know he was a son of the devil? Well, the Holy Spirit, but I'll tell you how he knew it just pretty easily because Paul was a son of the devil not that long ago before this, right? Acts chapter 9, go read Acts chapter 9. We talked a lot about Acts chapter 9. But what happens here to Bar-Jesus is the exact same thing that happens to Paul in Acts chapter 9. Did he not get struck with blindness? And did a darkness not come over him? And was he not groping around and someone had to take him to the hand and lead him to a house so that he could stay there waiting for Ananias to come and pray for him? It's the exact same thing. And so all you have here is a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. People's minds are dark without Christ Jesus. They are dark and they are sons of the devil. Because there are only two types of people on this earth. And when God looks down from heaven, this is what He sees. He sees His children, and He sees what else? Sons and daughters of the devil. There are no in-between. You are either part of the kingdom of God, or you are part of the kingdom of darkness. <coughs> Excuse me. There are only two kingdoms on this earth. And of course, I don't understand this, but biblically we know the kingdom of darkness is in control of Satan. And the Bible says different things about him, what he is, but he is, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians, the God of this world. So he has authority here. He has dominion here. He has reign on this earth right now, right? Yeah. And it's pretty clear biblically, okay? So he has a lot of people part of his kingdom, more than we got, by the way. So there are a lot more than them than there are of us. Jesus makes that clear, talking about the end days. I mean, how many are going to follow the narrow path? Few. And many are going to take the path of destruction. The path is wide. Okay, many will call out to me, Lord, Lord, and I'll say what? I didn't know you. So how many are going to call out to him? Many, not a few, not one, not two. Many will call out. So there are tons of people on this earth that are part of the kingdom of darkness and they are truly what Paul says here sons or daughters of the devil and here's what makes this more difficult for us in the church they're among us right they're right here sitting in our pews sitting in our buildings coming to church every week in churches just like this I mean, Jesus makes that clear with parables. I mean, the wheat and the tares. And people, we want to weed them up, right? That's what the, we would like to do. That's what the disciples wanted to do. Get them out, jerk them up. But what does Jesus say? No, let them tarry, let them grow until the time of what? Harvest. Okay, go read Revelation 14 and read about harvest and what's going to happen. There's going to be angels that come and they harvest the earth. And what do they use? They use a sickle. And what does a sickle do? It harvests wheat. And then the wheat and the tares will be separated. And the wheat will be taken into the barn, which is heaven. And the tares will be what? Thrown into the fire, which is hell. 
So this is just the way it's going to be. So we're never going to have a perfect church, a perfect place where we can come and where we can commune and where there are no sons of the devils or daughters of the devil among us. We're just not going to have it. Okay? We're not going to have it. So what should we be? Number one, we should be discerning and we should be discipling. Because guess what? Until Jesus Christ comes, they still have a chance to believe, right? Okay, so what should we be doing? Preaching the Word of God. That's what we should be doing so that people can believe just like this governor did because he was amazed at the Word of God. That's what we should be doing. And that's why we do it here so that even people here who are not among us have an opportunity to be saved just like this governor. But real quick, let's talk about opposition for a minute because I want you to see what Satan does. And if you want a clearer picture of this, go read Ephesians 6. And so Paul talks specifically there about spiritual warfare or fighting battles, just like he's fighting here in the physical. He's talking about fighting them in the spiritual because he says there we do it through prayer, and that's how we fight. But he also says that the enemy we're fighting has schemes or strategies or methods. The literal Greek word there is methodia, which we just transliterate into methods. So Satan has a strategy. He has methods to keep people from believing and even to stop us from sharing. Okay? So what are they? Well, I mean, we could talk about this all day again, but I think things Satan does, he kind of fits into categories, and a lot of those flow out of that. And so there's a lot of categories, but I'll give you three, especially in our Western culture where he's really good at it and where he's destroyed and blinded many people's eyes. Okay, you can see this, and there's this is no particular order. But one of the primary things Satan has done in our society is destroy the family. Okay? Now, man... We could talk about this a long time and flesh out what's happened through that. And again, in our day, you can see a physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. But why do you think Satan wants to destroy the family? Okay. Well, biblically, it's obvious. God placed the family, the family unit, a husband, a wife, on this earth to reflect His glory and to reflect and bear His image. Again, I tell you this all the time. I don't know why we make this difficult. But the only way we can truly be true image bearers of God is when one man and one woman come together as one flesh. I can't do it apart from my wife, Paige. I cannot bear the full image of God because she has characteristics of God that I don't have, and I have characteristics of God that she doesn't have. But what does God do when He brings us together as one flesh, never to be separated? We come together, then we're image bearers of God. Now, why are we image bearers of God? For our children. Our children learn who God is and learn His image and love His faithfulness and His love and His mercy and on and on and on through Paige and I. That's how my kids learn the image of God. Then we pass it on to them, and then what do they do? They pass it on to them, and it's generational after generational after generational. So if Satan can just get in the middle of that, and he can separate it, 
or he can pervert it, and he's done both in our day, what happens to our children's view of God? It is all screwed up, right? Big time screwed up, okay? What do you see in our day? You see people's image of God all screwed up. And how is that fleshing out? Well, just turn on your TV and look at all the garbage with transgenderism and LBGTQ, whatever, okay? That's the physical manifestation of a spiritual reality. What Satan has done through us is destroy the image of God so nobody knows who God is. That's all it is. So that's why he attacked the family. So pretty simple. He's done a very good job. Give him credit. And here's the best thing, if you could say anything good about Satan. The best thing about Satan, his, to me, greatest attribute is he is patient, man. He is patient. And he'll put something in place and he'll wait decades for it to come to fruition. So I can't do that. Anybody in here can do that? I'm not patient like that. He is patient. And he's good at it. And it's worked. So, he's destroyed the family. Another thing he's done through that, really almost simultaneously to me, is he's relegated the church. Okay? He's relegated the church. I mean, just think about it from a societal standpoint. Does the church hold the same authority, position, place that it did when you were kids? It's not even close, right? <clears throat> not even close. So how did Satan do that? Well, it's ingenious, I'm telling you. This, it's ingenious. This is how he did it. Okay, when all this started, and it was multiple things, but when it started with a family, when it started just societal, moral problems, different things, how did the church react to that? And this is unfortunately, the church always reacts rather than does what they're called to do. This is how the church reacted. They started preaching about morality, right? And we preached about things not to do. We preached about this is a sin and to live this way is a sin and blah, blah. It's just preach morality. You understand what I'm saying when I say that? We just preach morality. How many of you heard sermons on moral things as you were growing up? Probably a lot of I did. About the music I listened to, about... Alcohol, all kinds of things I heard as I was growing up. It was all morality. It was all morality. Okay, what's the problem with that? Well, what did we leave out? We left out salvation. I mean, what are we called to preach as the church? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Is that not what we're to go to the world and to share? Yeah. You are to preach and you are to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, right? That's the message, the one message the church has for the world, right? That's the message we have. But what message do we preach for so long to the world? We preach a different message. We preach morality. You got to live according to the standards of God's Word. Well, here's the problem with that. Without Christ, can you live according to the standards of God's Word? No, you can't do it with Christ, right? We have trouble with that, don't we? Okay, with, even with the Holy Spirit and with His power, we struggle living to the standards of this book. You tell someone without the Holy Spirit of God to do that, what happens? They fall flat on their face, and then what they see is, well, that Christianity, that, I can't do that. There's no way I can do that. It's because they don't know Jesus. So we were relegated because we didn't preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how many generations did we lose preaching morality? 
a lot. I mean, at least two. Okay, and I don't know that we've figured it out yet. I wish we had figured it out, but now we're just relegated and fighting amongst ourselves rather than preaching the gospel of Christ. And so it's just where we are. And I don't know what it's going to take from an awakening or revival standpoint, not there, I'm talking in here, to get us back to the heart of God and the heart of His Word. But we better get back to it. You know my view, what I think it's going to take. It's going to take persecution. But I wish it wasn't, but that's what I think it's going to take. Okay? So he's done that. He's destroyed the family. He's relegated the church. And then for true believers, I'm talking about true believers, true Christians, he's put us into bondage. Now, again, this one, like family and even like church, we could flesh this out all day long. But most Christians are bound, they're tied, they're enslaved, however you want to say it. Okay, with multiple things. A lot of it's fear. Satan's pretty good at that. He uses fear as a pretty good tool, right? I mean, Jesus says, or the Bible says that he goes around like what? A roaring lion trying to kill, steal, and destroy, where a lion roars to paralyze his prey, so they're afraid. That's what Satan does. He paralyzes us with fear. But does the Bible ever tell us that we're to have a spirit of fear? It says the opposite, right? Okay, what, what are we afraid of? I mean, we have Almighty God within us through the Holy Spirit and His mighty power. Why do we fear? But people are bound up with fear. Uh... Another great tool, maybe even better than fear, that Satan uses is the Bible calls him the accuser of the brethren in Revelation. He's the accuser, Revelation 12, the accuser of the brethren. Now we know in a literal sense what that means. Who does he accuse us before? God, go read the book of Job, okay? Go read Revelation, okay? He's the accuser. But... That's not where it attacks us. He accuses us in our mind, in our heart, all the stinking time, right? He's the accuser. Just to get us to thinking about, well, you're not worthy, or you can't do this, or God would never use you, or God, blah, blah. I mean, he just accuses over and over and over. And people get bound up in that. Because, of the number one, they don't know God's Word. So they believe the lies of Satan. And then, probably the most obvious to us, he just tempts us to sin. He's good at that one too, right? But that's how he binds Christians. Those three ways. He binds us. And then do you see how all these are just kind of a cycle? They just work and flow together from a family perspective, from a church perspective, from an individual believer perspective. They're just a cycle. And he just keeps us in this cycle. And what does he do? He keeps the word of God from being shared and preached and people's lives being changed. He just opposes us. And that's all he's doing. 
That's all he's doing. It's as simple as that. But the problem is it's simple for him. It's not hard. And how long has he been doing this? Pretty long time. And he doesn't change because he doesn't have to. So what's the answer? Well, the Word of God's paramount. Well, I mean, I, I don't know if you're here Sunday, but I believe the answer is what I preach Sunday. I believe it's God's Word and repentance. I believe that's where it starts. I believe if, as believers, if the church, if families could get back to those two things, the Word of God and repentance, and our kids understood the Word of God and they had repentance modeled for them, I believe that would change a lot of things. I believe it would change a lot of things. But just a good question. How many of you growing up truly saw repentance modeled for you? I mean, some of you probably did. A lot of you probably didn't. Right? I mean, we're not good with humility. Or I'm not, are you? Okay. If you're saying you are, you're probably not. Okay. So we're just not good with humility. Why? I don't know, because we're flesh. We're prideful. That's, I mean, that's the root of sin. So humbleness, contriteness, repentance is hard. And it's really hard in public. It's a lot easier for me to do it in my secret place, in my quiet place, in my prayer time, than it is for me to do it standing up there on the pulpit, right? Of course it is. Okay, so again, how many of you did saw true repentance modeled for you? We don't see that very often, do we? We just don't see it very often. And so our kids don't understand that. Our churches don't understand true repentance. They just don't understand it. And so it's hard to get to that. I'm just telling you, most things you don't learn on your own, right? And if you're like me, most things you learn are modeled for you or they're shown to you. That's how we learn, right? That's discipleship, by the way. But that's how we learn. And so in the church, and I can't do anything about any other church, but in this church, our kids, our teenagers, our college students, our young adults, they need true repentance modeled for them. They need that. Because that's what will keep them close to the heart of God. Because without it, you ain't close to the heart of God because you're sinful. And what is God? He's holy. And that word doesn't mean without sin. That word means set apart from sin, separated from sin. Okay, so how do you get close to God or get back to the heart of God? Through repentance. How did the prodigal son do it? Through repentance. He came back to his father when he came to his senses, when he repented, when he turned, when he came back to him. Okay? Repentance is the key. So I don't know how to model that for you. I don't know what all we need to do, but I just understand that we need to seek the heart of God on that and figure it out. And then stand upon his word. 
And so next week we'll look at the word part and why that's so important. Thanks for tuning in today. Join us next week as Pastor John continues the study. And if you're looking for more, find us at northportbaptist.org.